Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I write books and articles and give lectures on things like phenomenology and existentialism and the meaning of life. And I'm Eric Kaplan, and I'm a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And you are listening to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a podcast in which we confront scary and unsettling questions and find courage to confront them and think about them. And we are here today with Kristen Conger, who's the creator and host of the podcast Unladylike and co-author of the book Unladylike, a field guide for smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space. Hi, Kristen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on it. So do you have for us a terrifying question? I do. And I mean, I don't know necessarily how terrifying it is to me as a <laughs> cisgender woman, yeah. but perhaps perhaps it might be a little more terrifying to you fellas. Um, my terrifying question is, should masculinity be abolished? Whoa. Yeah. So let me first ask, I mean, <laughs> I'm reasonably masculine. Does this involve me being murdered in some way <laughs> if it were ab abolished? Oh, well, the question isn't, should we kill men? <laughs> okay, so what is the question? That'll be another episode, yeah. So what does it mean? It's more, should the gender construct of masculinity be done away with? Mm -hmm. Right. And and would femininity go along with it? Are they, are they like, um, whatever, like uh, knives and forks? Like, do they go together? <laughs> <laughs> or are they more like a spork? It's just kind of all, all one and the same. Ah. Right. Knives and forks is a horrible example because you could get rid of knives and still have forks. So what am I thinking of? It's like the two, the two tines of a, of a scissors. Like you couldn't get rid of one. You wouldn't have mm. a scissors. Mm. May, Taylor, can you think of a better example? Two sides of a coin is the one I always fall back on. Right. So if we get rid of masculinity, do we get rid of femininity per force? Well, that's that's part of all of this, right? Of like if we are if we're thinking in terms of a gender binary with masculinity on one side of the coin, femininity on the other, is this more a question of just tossing gender out the window ah. altogether. But I will say I am particularly curious about the masculinity piece for selfish reasons, because on Unladylike, I'm always talking about uh, the the uh, more the feminine mm. side of the coin, I guess, right. as you might uh, infer from a title like Unladylike. We talk a lot about feminism, women, and gender from that perspective. And this was my just a, a delightful excuse to get into masculinity, partly because also I feel like a lot of times today the word that precedes masculinity is toxic, right? Right. Like there's been a lot of conversation in recent years around the Me Too era of toxic masculinity and... I'm curious to just kind of zoom out a little bit with mm -hmm. that. I, well, here's here's one thing. I think I'm glad you said that because here's one piece of sort of argumentative um, declaring. I think this is true. If all masculinity is toxic, then masculinity should be abolished. Like if, if it's it's an entirely a toxic thing, of course it should be abolished. Um, like if it, if all it does is hurt people, uh, you know, primarily women, but also men, of course, then it should be abolished. Um, so I think, you know, maybe maybe a step towards answering this question, should it be abolished, is, first of all, what is it? <laughs> and second of all, what's so toxic about it? And then we could say, well, could you have it without the toxicity or not? And then if the answer is no, then I would say that's pretty strong evidence that it should be abolished. What do you two think of that? It seems to me when the when the phrase toxic masculinity was sort of appeared, I don't know when, not too long ago, it, it seemed to me to be modifying, like adding something. It's not just redundant. Yes. Like even narcissism, people say toxic narcissism. And I'm not saying narcissism is a great thing, but there's kind of benign narcissism. There's some people who are kind of narcissistic and big deal. But the toxic narcissist is a sort of an extra problem uh, on top of the narcissism. I would assume some things like that true. Or is it like brutal dictatorship? 
Yeah, that it's well, like, it's true. Should brutal dictatorships be abolished? Sure, but that's because dictatorships in general are a bad thing, and the brutal ones are even worse. But brutality is more like kind of a, a direction that dictatorship has a tendency to go, since it's the rule by one unchecked power. But I'm I'm no fan of dictatorships, but there are more or less benign monarchies. Right, I'm sure I mean, there's yeah. more or less benign yeah. forms of masculinity. Okay, you know, there's the guy who who feels the need to enforce his masculine privilege by violence and there's a guy who does it by sort of condescension and you know bringing valentine's day flowers <laughs> i think the second guy is probably better Kristen, or no well i mean in that instance sure yeah i, I would much okay. prefer flowers to violence <laughs> yeah but they're both bad oh are they both bad not necessarily although i will say um uh this is now giving me the image of uh, on International Women's Day. If you go to Russia, Putin always does this. This uh, I, I love this ceremony where he brings women in and he gives them giant bouquets of flowers. Mm. And mm -hmm. you know, in that regard, of you know, if Putin's giving you flowers, then you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that that, that that's all that great. <laughs> but he's a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> this exactly. takes us back to dictatorship. There's something toxic going on there. Yeah, <laughs> certainly, certainly. Putin is not our our you role know, model male for sure. You know, Simone de Beauvoir had that view of like this about gender. She was talking about femininity, and she thought it was a kind of fiction. It's a kind of cultural tradition. It's a kind of myth. It's sort of unreal, but it's been constructed, and there's a kind of, as it were conspiracy that men and women are both involved in to promote this thing which depends on all of us reaffirming it constantly in order to exist at all and her idea was something like maybe we'd be better off without this um, we'd be better off without this myth of gender so that's what I grew up with sort of thinking that gender is a construct as people say socially constructed sex difference is set and firm and unproblematic but gender is this thing that's ultimately maybe collectively voluntary. I used to think that. I'm not sure I believe either of those sides anymore, but that's one view of it might be whether we should abolish it or not. The assumption may be that we could abolish it if we chose to, and I'm, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, let's figure out what it is first. Do you believe it, Christian? What's your take on gender? Do I believe what specifically? That we could abolish it. Bracket the question whether we ought to. Let's just think about whether that's an option like what Eric was suggesting. Is it like um, hereditary monarchy? That is a cultural contingency, and we got rid of it, hopefully. I don't think I said that when the cameras were rolling, but it is what I think. I think masculinity is a bit like kingship, and femininity is a bit like being subject to your rightful king. Uh -huh. And the correct view is there is no kingship, uh -huh. and we should stop doing that. But what do you think, Kristen? I, I think that it would be incredibly hard if not impossible to abolish without some kind of nefarious force behind it you know what i mean <laughs> okay that's yeah. that's where well, it I starts some to people get said like that you have to have a revolution yeah. the king would be incredibly hard to abolish right. but they did it <laughs> And some people might have thought you couldn't. Some people might have thought actually something like monarchy is sort of written into human nature and anything right. else well, is going to be unnatural. What will people do without a king? They'll just go yeah. nuts. Right? Some of these myths, they thrive because people think they're natural. And I'm sure that was what de Beauvoir was saying about femininity, that it thrives largely because people think there's no alternative to it. And maybe there is, maybe there isn't. So could you say a little more, Christian? Like, why do you think it would be hard to abolish? Well, I mean... <laughs> I think that if we just look right now at our cultural, social, political landscape in the United States, we are seeing um, a whole range of uh, very visceral, even violent reactions to mm -hmm. the idea of any recognition of not necessarily abolishing a gender binary, but just recognizing a gender spectrum. Mm -hmm. So... There is that uh, grim reality. And also, it leads me to this question, too, of at what point does a gender construct in and simply like individual traits begin? Like, how do you decode, like, degender all of the things that 
we ascribe as masculine or feminine coded, even just like hobbies, like woodworking versus embroidery, say, you know what I mean? Like, how do we even get down to that granular level to just like wipe the slate clean and say like, okay, if if you are someone assigned male at birth and you happen to really enjoy like flowery embroidery, like why would that be a mismatch? Like, why is that necessarily like a feminine mm. interest? Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. Do you ever um, receive pushback? Like you described yourself as a cisgender woman. Like, do you ever do a stereotypically masculine thing and then find that males are like, hey, we're supposed to do that, Kristen. You you cut it out. We're threatened. I mean, they're they're not as as overt as that necessarily. Um, well, they could it, do it with side eye. They don't need to say it in the most ham-fisted way. Well, you know, it's also it's also not necessarily just men who are doing that kind that kind of gender policing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like right, right. I mean, especially for. Thinking back to my like adolescence and teen years, it's other girls who are who are watching and doing a lot of that kind of oh, you shouldn't be doing that. That's weird for her to be doing. Why is she hanging out with the guys? Why would she want to do that? Um, but this is just reminding me of my own personal experience uh, when I was a kid. I I really liked playing with my older brothers, and I remember like outside playing basketball. And my brothers would spit, you know, as guys do when they're exercising. Mm. Apparently, you work up a good spit. <laughs> and I thought that was so cool. So I I started spitting. And I guess my mom, like, saw me out of the kitchen window. Uh-huh. And she was like, Kristen, honey, you cannot, you cannot be out here spitting. And I was That's like, but great. Matthew spits. And she was like, well. Um, <laughs> you know, when I heard the title of your podcast, Unladylike, it sounded to me like something mothers at least used to say to their daughters. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> and then, though, as far as the question of do I ever get pushback of men basically like expressing some kind of like masculine threat by me? Um, mm-hmm. Not directly, but one very kind of like gender norm conversation around these lines that came up between me and my now husband when we were uh, dating and, you know, things were getting serious and we were intending to be wed. Like it was, you know, an ongoing conversation and him knowing me, uh, you know, as kind of a loudmouth feminist um, and he describes himself as a, as a feminist as well. Um, and he was like, I just want to put it out there. Like I, would like to propose to you, you know? And I was like, okay, all right. He was proposing to propose. Yeah, <laughs> and I accepted his proposal to propose. It's a meta-proposal. Yes, um, but but I but I appreciated that because, like, I could see... I could see how he would be like, oh, God, you know, she's going to she's going (laughs) to somehow turn this into like a feminist political act. And he was like, I just Mm -hmm. you know, I would like to do that. You know, I just, you know, which is a very. Why did you say okay? Because I didn't because, frankly, I didn't want to propose. Uh (laughs) That would mean that I would have to buy something. (laughs) Right. I think that if it hadn't been part of like an ongoing conversation and us like mm. having a a basis there of mm. mutual respect and understanding of each other um i i thought that it was actually like thoughtful in that regard for it because that was also him checking in with me of like uh-huh. right you know if he had gone down on one knee in a restaurant in the middle of a big crowd of people oh, and made a big show God. of it it might have been or on a jumbotron um but <laughs> We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, I'm curious um, if you wish uh, Tim were a little less masculine, um, if he's too masculine and if he needs to tone it down a little, like, um, <laughs> so maybe we can address that. Or, or well, you, you don't need to personally disclose. We can discuss it in a general sense. Like, if we wanted all men to be a little less masculine, like if we wanted to abolish 75% of masculinity, what, how would we re, re, renegotiate this? But let's take a little break.
Wilkie, that was a good break. Taylor, why don't you say who we're, who we're here with? Who are we here with? We are here with Kristen Conger, who has the podcast Unladylike and uh, has co-authored a book under the same title with a subtitle, uh, A Field Guide for Smashing Patriarchy and Claiming Your Space. And we're talking about masculinity, what it is, where it comes from. Maybe we haven't quite talked about that and whether it should be curtailed or questioned or problematized or abolished. By the way, I apologize for bringing this into a personal thing, and you don't have to, because I actually do think that's kind of gendered in intellectual discourse, that female philosophers often talk about their personal experience, and male philosophers often talk about sort of what is the case, Mm. and Mm. I don't think that's cool necessarily, although I tend to, I like to talk about personal things myself, but I I don't want you to feel you know, cajoled into disclosing, you can talk about it all on a level of generality. And that's, that's cool. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share. Um, I am curious not to totally uh, tangent us. Why do y'all think that is of the, the difference that that gender difference you've noticed in philosophy? Mm. Well, I have a theory, which is, I think, one of the byproducts of toxic masculinity is a sort of splitting between the intellect and the emotions. And mm. and so that's one thing. So I think a lot of people who are socialized male or view themselves as male don't like to acknowledge their feelings. So therefore, when they talk about how people should behave, it's more like I'm a judge and I figured it all out. And here's the answer. Not like I really hurt my feelings when somebody said this. So let's let me disclose that. So I think men tend not to do that. And I also think there's an aspect of philosophy, at least when I was coming up in the ranks, which is a sort of... Um, it's like sports. It's a sort of masculine status battle. It's very adversarial. It's an adversarial system where you're trying to show off and prove that you're the brilliant young man with all the good arguments and you can beat anyone else with different arguments. And it's, I mean, it's exciting, honestly. It's exciting. It's fun. It's also quite obnoxious. And I don't know that it, it necessarily leads to truth because there's a lot of good things that are true that are difficult to argue for. <laughs> in my <laughs> philosophy has a notoriously bad gender representation imbalance worse than chemistry and mm-hmm. almost every discipline but it drives a lot of women away from the discipline and from early on not just in graduate school or later on it's like in at the level of taking intro to philosophy already more men are majoring in philosophy you've already got like maybe one in four philosophy majors are women i'm not going to generalize about i won't generalize about women but i will say that my mother had much less tolerance for sort of abstract bullshit. So she was sort of like, like she wasn't too happy that I went to philosophy. She wanted me to be a doctor because she's like, well, there's sick people and you learn how to fix them. Don't have a conversation about stuff. <laughs> like she didn't like that. And and I don't know if that's coded. I don't know if it's coded female. It might have something to do with Judaism because in Judaism, there's this sort of ideal that the guy should be off studying mm-hmm. and the women should actually run the business and run the household. <laughs> <laughs> but I think whatever these things are, these gender phenomena, they certainly get ramped up by practices and prejudices and traditions. And so there's no doubt that a lot of it is constructed and contingent in such a way that it could be dismantled. Mm. Well, what do you think, Kristen? Well, I want us to also answer kind of the bigger question that I don't know if we've put a finer point on of what is masculinity like we talked about toxic masculinity at the top of the show but what are we talking about when we are talking about masculinity and in this question of should masculinity be abolished is that more like kind of confusing masculinity for patriarchy thinking about like Uh you know the 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 crux of of a lot of the problems which is which is the power yeah right so what do you think Kristen? what is masculinity oh i was hoping y'all would answer that question (laughs) what's an example of a behavior or a trait that strikes you as masculine um uh, I'll tell you the image that pops into my head, and it is okay, cool. it is a guy wearing a loose sleeveless basketball jersey and ill-fitting shorts, <laughs> like um, <laughs> uh, a sport jersey being sincerely worn. Um, but I think that 
a ma- a trait of masculinity, especially in opposition to like binary femininity, mm-hmm. is emotional reserve it's kind of like uh logic versus emotion um and that refraining from emotional expression and being more stoic Mm -hmm. is considered masculine it's like it's it's more physical uh so i would say that there is that and i think that there's something to like when you were talking about kind of the uh gendered patterns around um within like philosophy and academia uh it reminds me too of uh kind of like with with my sports jersey guy that the like the appeal of statistics mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like record store guys sports guys like you know uh there's something about that like very uh niche deep knowledge that can be like rattled off mm-hmm. at a moment's notice that feels particularly masculine of a way to like flex your your credentials right so like this is so interesting but i kind of want to I want to kind of at least talk about that first one, that strong, silent stoicism. Mm. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, are there any situations where you, and, and I'll open it up to the three of us, think that that's good? Is it worthwhile ever to be the kind of person who, even if you're scared or sad, you don't tell everybody else? Yes. Like what? Like a cool head in a crisis. Like, okay. I I think that it, it it can be it can serve you any I mean any you, you right. Know? So I guess so. Maybe one question is: Should in a society we have a mix of the people who are shutting up about their emotions to get the job done, and people who are expressing their emotions, so we all are able to process what we actually feel about the situation? Like, is that a good mix? Like, should everybody be strong, the strong, silent type? I mean, that's a possibility. Um, or should there be a mix? Yeah. I have a proposal to make. I'm not comfortable with the line of questioning okay. here. Uh, and the reason is that I think we're confusing okay. things. So I'm all for trying to get a grip on our concept of masculinity by picking out mm-hmm. features. And I think the strong, silent, stoic thing is definitely masculine. A lot of it ancient misogyny. We were talking about Dido in one of our mm-hmm. previous episodes. You know, the women who are losing control of their emotions are all through ancient literature, and that's a misogynistic stereotype because the Stoic ideal is control and so on. So, But there's all kinds of things that once we talk about them in isolation are going to sound like virtues, Mm. right? Control of your emotion, rationality, strength, courage, looking after the family as like in the traditional role of the head of the family. There's There's something to be said for that in all kinds of situations. But I think the thing about masculinity is it's supposed to be a concept that ties all these things together and identifies them with men. Mm. And I think if we're like really criticizing masculinity, we're going to miss the ball if we start. Because like I said, it's easy to say that of all these particular traits, it's easy to display them as virtues and think, isn't that great? Maybe the masculinity idea is the idea that these are the ones appropriate for men and not women. Okay. Well, I so I was sort of trying to come up with like, I think anyone who would say that men are courageous and women are cowardly <laughs> like that's such a that's such a non-starter that's such a mis- clearly misogynistic opinion that i feel like i can't seriously engage with it what i was thinking about was a sort of um difference feminism view which says like wh- which i also think may very well be wrong but at least i think it's worth engaging with so the difference feminism would be would be we need both kinds of people We need people who lie about their emotions so that everybody else doesn't get freaked out. But we also need people who are honest about their emotions. And guess what? We tend to gender that polarity. Sure. Because I would, I would, I'm sort of tempted to say we do need both kinds of people. We tend to gender that polarity, but we don't have to. And we could teach men to be more 
in touch with, and let's not even call it feminine because it's, it's uh. tied into a whole bunch of hateful mm -hmm. attitudes, but let's teach men to um, be in touch with their vulnerability uh, and let's teach traditionally uh, socialized women to, to get a grip, <laughs> you know. That's going to um, be my new podcast. <laughs> Ladies, get a grip. <laughs> Just to put it in a purely neutral way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so that's at least I want to engage with that, but it may well be wrong. But it's almost too, it may be almost too easy to agree with a lot of that, okay. except for the very last part, which is, I mean, I think still not obvious that you can just teach people to reshape whatever natural inclinations they may have. That may be harder than you think. Well, I think that this is where a lot of the rub of gender and a gendered, a hypergendered society becomes such a minefield. And I really liked the way that you put it, Taylor, of like how how quickly these isolated traits yeah. can be like virtuous. Yeah, yeah. But the problem then is when you attach it to a certain group of only one group of people. And also, I mean, like anytime we're talking about gender in isolation as well, like you're not going to get a fully nuanced view because of all of the different layers of identity too that like shape and inform the, the way that people are going to individually engage with gendered socialization or expectations and things like that. Well, is there a direction you'd like to see us go? Not the three of us, but, you know, our society. As in fellas? Yeah. Well, okay. I ran across a little... I, I will come back to the, to the question for of today, what, what I would personally like to see. Sure. But... Um, Earlier this I'm not saying you qua Christian. You qua right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think relevant to our conversation, uh, earlier this week, I was doing some reading on a slice of second wave feminist history from the early 1970s that I had been unaware of, and that was the uh, very, very brief and sort of um, uh, not hugely impactful men's liberation oh, yeah. Yeah. movement and mm -hmm. what it amounted to were a group of largely like white leftist young men who were seeing what was happening with consciousness raising groups specifically that their wives and girlfriends were becoming you know, kind of, uh, you know, finding this new language and this new, like, fury, really, uh, in their lives and then bringing it home. And it was kind of upending their domestic relationships, but also creating new space for these men to question the masculine paradigms, like kind of the compulsory masculinity that they were raised with, which, of course, in 1970, like, it is still a lot of vestiges of that today but um even more so um very rigid roles and it was interesting to see these guys who were who were having this a similar kind of awakening of like hey you know what like i was raised to be a stoic breadwinner but also like i don't know how to express my emotions or really like talk to other men in a way that's not totally surface or just devolves into violence like let's so they tried to start these men's consciousness raising groups to start hashing this kind of stuff out and I just found it really fascinating because like they were they were also understanding that like hey yeah patriarchy this whole thing this is making my life worse as well and we're talking about like relatively affluent young white men uh cluing into this so what in general, I think would be a move in the, a positive direction is maybe some of that um, spaces where there is some, I think there is a piece to the men to men kind of socialization and them like learning how to express feelings to each other that could have interesting positive ripple effects. I don't know. What do y'all think? Have you noticed men unable to express their feelings? Oh, I have. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and are the feelings there? They just don't know how to express them? Or are they just emotionally stunted, do you think? 
I think it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that one through line of the contemporaneous pieces that I was reading about this little men's liberation, like brief little moment in the 70s, like the undercurrent of all of it that the guys at the time weren't really directly grappling with, but was clearly driving a lot of this discomfort was just a full-blown latent homophobia. Because mm. these are also like straight men mm. who were having this, this like, oh, wait, I don't, you know, I don't know how to talk about my emotions, but uh. also to do that, like people might think... Uh. They might think I'm gay, you know? So it's, again, it's like a very, it's a layered kind of thing going on. So I I can speak to that from personal experience. So when I grew up, there was a lot of boy-on-boy policing mm-hmm. of being gay. And for example, I don't know if you have heard this, you were supposed to look at, you were given the instruction, look at your fingernails and if you look at your fingernails by allowing your hand to go slot to slope downwards uh-huh. it means you're gay because limp wristedness is associated with being gay and if you look at your fingers by making a fist and look at them like that then you're not gay and of course this isn't accurate you could look at your fingers any old way and be gay or not um but it means that like you know that you're going to be accused of being gay if you make the slightest small false step um, and two weekends ago, I was invited to an all-male, basically an encounter group where men would talk about our feelings. And I was thinking, oh, no, what if what if I end up, like, feeling gay feelings? What if I end up being attracted to these men or they think I am? Like, I had some sort of moderate gay panic. Um, and I went to this thing, and, and it didn't happen. Don't worry, listeners. I, I didn't become gay by being in touch with my feelings. Um, But um, what was interesting was there was a man there who was openly gay, and he was talking about um, how much he loved his partner and how he had met him when they were dancing, and he was such a beautiful soul. I was like, this is great. This is great. This is an admirable relationship. And I also said to him, like, whoa, that's a lot of courage. Like, Because he didn't know if a bunch of older men were going to be homophobic or... He just went for it. So I, I found that it was mm. it was what they call a corrective emotional experience. Like if you have all sorts of like emotional stuff programmed into your head and you're sort of afraid that if certain things will happen, it'll be bad in some way. And then you just do them and nothing bad happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes mm. you less scared, I guess. Maybe this mm. is entirely obvious, but. I had a thought, if I can. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. occurred to me that whereas a lot of us used to think sex is a natural biological distinction and gender is a purely social construct and so maybe we can get rid of it like we got rid of monarchy. Um, What's interesting about recent developments with non-binary and transgender stuff is that people who are trans often look like they're very and maybe even innately attracted to what's stereotypically feminine or masculine, though they were born with what's supposed to be the sex not associated with those traits. So I know trans women who really like frilly dresses and everything to do with what they grew up is thinking of as feminine. And they don't really want to be liberated from that. They want to embrace it because it's how they felt ever since they were little. And they felt like they couldn't identify with that without like severe social consequences. And that makes me think maybe these gender stereotypes, though they can often be fueled by prejudice and tradition and oppressive mechanisms may also have just enough root in people's inclinations. You know, whatever you feel like you just started out with, whatever the origin of it is, where I think we all sort of feel like there's certain things we didn't sort of decide to be, but we just found ourselves that way. That's the experience of a lot of trans people with reference to what looks like gender types, which makes me think that probably a lot of gender phenomena are not just completely arbitrary social constructs but that's much more complicated, interwoven with sex difference, and none of our ordinary categories really carve up the field in a very adequate way. We've got these very simplistic distinctions between masculine, feminine, man, woman, even male, female turns out to be more complicated than you'd think, although that's pretty clear-cut. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's enough to explain reproduction and so on. But the whole phenomenon is it's so complicated that this distinction between what's determined and what's just totally up for grabs is quite blurry. I I think that it's 
an important reality uh, and point to to make in this conversation as well. And it's, I think, so much of the oppressive nature of a gender binary is when it becomes compulsory, when it becomes yeah. forced, when there is punishment for not adhering to one clean, you know, this or that, yeah. uh, if you're not fitting into some kind of box. And it actually reminds me of a, a troll who showed up on uh, Unladylike's Instagram recently when I posted about Trans Visibility Week and, uh, you know, amplifying that. And this person said, oh, my God, this is all... There are no bathroom bans. There are no sports bans. We're just asking people to go to the appropriate category in space. And to me, that word like appropriate. Well, okay, says who? Like, I think it's it's like mm-hmm. the the moralizing of it and the punitive nature of it is when it feels like, hey, let's abolish this. But well, what, um, what if the punishment is like? just not having as wide a pool of people to date. You know what I mean? Like, supposing you're looking for a date in your high school, and there's like 200 people, and you're looking for a male date. And there are 10 feminist guys, and 10 extremely misogynist guys, and 80 kind of waffly guys in the middle. So it's kind of a punishment for your feminism if you have to date those 10 guys, like those are the only 10 possibilities, while the non-feminist woman who doesn't challenge the gender binary has possibly 90 guys, because maybe some of those 10 guys are objectionable for other reasons, like maybe they have annoying personalities, you know, they, they're too short, too tall, wrong, you don't know, like their hair color or something like that, not cute. So then that's a form of punishment, right? That you're just, in other words, patriarchy, can it can infringe on your freedom in an obvious way by like sending you to jail for not having three pieces of feminine clothing on you as used to happen in New York but it can also infringe on you just by limiting your your pool of options maybe maybe we can talk about that a little bit when we come back we're going to take a little break Well, we're back. Um, uh, while we were away, uh, Taylor invoked his full patriarchal authority and told his son <laughs> to stop playing the piano in the other room. It was Chopin, though, so it was sounding pretty nice, but it'll have to wait a it few more minutes. It was pretty, yep. you know, in Roman law, you could legally kill him. <laughs> it's comforting to know that that's an option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we've gotten all soft. That's right. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. I'm wondering, like, what's the answer? Should this system, like, did we decide, like, what it is and what should we do about it? This masculinity, this, it trains men to constantly be worried about being called gay and, and to treat women as these sort of dimwit subject class and, and not to know what our emotions are. It seems, it seems, uh, it seems bad. Are we talking about patriarchy or masculinity? Masculinity. Masculinity. Yeah, because it's not a system. I don't think masculinity is a system. I think patriarchy so is a system. So what's masculinity? Well, like, okay. I'd like to get rid of patriarchy just as much as I want to get rid of monarchy, because we can. I don't see why okay. we can't. Masculinity is something else. I don't have a definition, but it seems like it's... By the way, I was also wanted to say, as complex as all these phenomena are, they're doubly or triply complex when you also realize that sexual orientation doesn't map onto any of these distinctions very clearly. Like I was thinking, is is Freddie Mercury was he masculine? I think so. I think so. Yeah. So, in other words, I just think the picture is very complex. Um, my own guess is that masculinity is not really something governable. It's something that some people exhibit, uh, and it's come to stand in for patriarchal oppressive structures, which are more easy to think about abolishing but that's my own two cents yeah should the should the female aesthetic preference for masculinity be removed or checked in some way oh i i think that when you say the the um 
the aesthetic preference, kind of the tall, dark, and handsome yes. sort of. Uh... Yeah, but I wouldn't just say what men look like, but also how we behave, like yes. stoic. Like I'm saying, if women are always going to, if women, not always, but if women will tend to find a man who weeps a lot to be aesthetically displeasing, then I think men will react to this incentive and weep less. Wouldn't that apply to anyone who's constantly weeping? I guess it depends on... It's a turnoff for anybody. Maybe maybe they just have seasonal allergies. I don't know. Um, I, yeah, well, I... I think I'm okay with a, a weepy <laughs> woman. I think it can be charming. I mean, constantly is a, perhaps a, a tough word. Um, I think... I kind of feel like maybe I can comfort her. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. So that's... So you can so you can step into the masculine role, right? Uh, she can be damsel in distress. Correct, correct. So that's why I'm saying these sort of interlocking aesthetic preferences may be something we need to address. Right, and what like the thing that I I end up going in in circles in my head with with all of this and the question of like, well, what is the alternative? It starts to feel very just kind of overly simplistic of like we'll just let everybody be who they want to be like that feel that's way that's not a satisfying answer well i think one reason is i'm a married man but when i was a teenager i wanted to be who would be attractive to women so it wasn't like i'd like to be whatever no let me know what the women want and i, I will try and be that kind of guy because i wanted to be wanted yes I mean, and I did the same thing for what I hoped would get boys in high school to ask me out. Didn't work. Um, and I think that I do think that it. you raise a good question, though, of uh, do the traditional feminine types that we're supposed to be attracted to what what is what is supposed to be an attractive man like does that need to be checked the answer is yes because so often it feeds into this culture a very unhealthy like romantic relationship culture of setting up expectations of of how we should be treated by someone and it's like it's okay if a man you know He's going to be emotionally distant, but also he'll take out this trash. Like it just, it starts to mess with everything. Sure. It's a holistic system. I think that's true. So like, supposing I wanted to, or some, some younger single version of me wanted to try and be a gentleman in distress, that I would like to be a masculine man who's constantly looking for women to save him. Is that worth doing is it worth it for me to try and get the gentleman in distress archetype going or is there something inherently people, foolish people do that all the time it's a common uh -huh. masculine stereotype of sort of needing to be mothered and taken care of right. by a woman i mean it, it's like once you describe so it's it not that breaking way new ground. that doesn't sound to me like breaking any new ground at all i mean but um, you don't do it by crying yeah you might or do you uh, no you do it by getting a cute dog by getting a cute dog <laughs> i guess i guess you do it by like um doing a risky activity that hurts you and then sort of standing around with the blood pouring down your face waiting for some woman to be like oh you poor guy. But it has to be some activity. <laughs> like, like you, <laughs> you say weeping, but, you know, not to keep invoking ancient literature, but Achilles is weeping constantly. And a lot of my students right. when they read the Iliad say, what a big crybaby. That was totally masculine behavior in Homer's world. I mean, these things change all the time from one time to another. So maybe recently crying is a bad thing. I can easily imagine very macho masculine guys getting all weepy. Maybe they get drunk and then they get weepy. And that's part of their, mas right. their sort of performance of masculinity i think it's very hard to tie these things up in I such feel, a neat yeah i feel like way. a lot of it we need to look to the hot guys to drive the way and i guess the women who are attracted to them because if like if a guy with really good cheekbones and long hair who looks really good puts on a dress then that will move the 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 and by the way during the pandemic i got this some things from the lithuania that were i wanted to wear robes and I wore them and they were very comfortable, but I realized they were dresses that I thought they were robes, but they were also dresses. <laughs> like these are two words for the same thing. Uh -huh. And I really got it. I, I find pants to be a pretty, um, a pretty uncomfortable garment as garments go. But anyway, that's 
That's just an anecdote. And it's always, grass is always greener, right? Because women have to fight true. for a right to wear pants. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I don't think there's anything green about the high-heeled shoe. No. That seems to be just a diabolical <laughs> instrument of torture. Yeah, yeah. Hi, hi. That's a that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. Um, but to your point about look to the hot guys, Exhibit A, Harry Styles. Yes. Like he he is actually like kind of embodying what you were talking about in terms of gentlemen like, in distress. <laughs> I don't know about I don't know how in distress he is, but he is in in a dress. <laughs> like gentleman he's, in a dress. Yeah. Fashion wise, like playing with gender presentation and i'm not i'm i hate to tell you guys uh, i'm glad this is toward the end of the episode i don't know all that much about harry styles so i don't know what how he like uh his sexual orientation necessarily but um i do think it's interesting to see like and that is a new development of a kind of heartthrob teeny bop guy who is also like still fulfilling that role but doing it wearing pearls and a a lovely gown yeah sometimes yeah it also i I guess maybe the cultural movers on this issue are teenage girls because the teenage girls decide who are the cultural icons and the cultural icons tell all the boys and men how you're supposed to be is this theory right i'm not a sociologist and now i'm just sort of spitballing i think the i think in terms of like the pop cultural tastemakers teen girls for sure but i think in terms of what we're talking about and the gender norms of it all the folks to look to probably are trans people Mm. okay now we're kind of running out of time and and one thing i wanted to touch on before we go is i'm noticing a lot of young men interested in philosophy online with really weird ideas about masculinity. Mm. And they seem to be all kind of bent out of shape and they like to read Nietzsche and they like to read Jordan Peterson and they say weird things. Have you noticed this too, Kristen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So what's the deal with those guys? Okay. What's going on with those guys? Um, well, uh, last year I interviewed uh, someone who actually studies, um, they, they self-identify as like men's rights activists types like it's sort of they're all in this kind of ecosystem yes she studies them um and what she found is that they're kind of gateway into these these kinds of twisted ideologies and philosophies that you're getting at is a lot of times it is romantic rejection Uh that and seeking out a space to express these feelings process these feelings with other guys who have been there too and unfortunately the resources on the internet that are out there and they're that are probably the the quickest that are served up to them and the algorithms are going to be subreddits jordan peterson youtube videos whatever it might be and to bring us a little bit full circle with that men's liberation uh movement in the early 1970s one of its semi-leaders who in the 70s was really like pro-feminism. He was a board member of the National Organization for Women. He wrote a book called The Liberated Male. His name is Warren Farrell. Today, he is now considered the intellectual kind of forefather Mm. of men's rights activists and incels because after the Second wave feminism dies off in the 1980s. You get a conservative backlash. Feminism, like the movement itself, sort of like uh, withers in a lot of ways. In 1993, this same guy publishes another book that is now considered kind of the men's rights activist Bible, uh, where he's like, hey, you know what? You know who actually has it the worst in this society? The real people who are oppressed? (laughs) It's men. And that inspires what is now uh, a whole digital realm of twisted masculinity. Is there a way, and I'm asking both of you, is there a way that we can communicate with these guys and give them a less toxic and sort of butthurt model of masculinity that like, I'm sorry your girlfriend didn't want to go out with you. That's rough. And here's a way not to become... A, a a bitter misogynist like like do either of you have any experience talking with people like this 
I don't, to be honest. I try to avoid Jordan Peterson Twitter posts as much as I possibly can. Like people who are interested in that, like I can't help feeling like, like, like something went wrong mm -hmm. and, and they're entitled to be heard if they could just put down some of the, some of the, the hostility that is separating them from other men and from women in a way that's not serving their needs. I think a lot of prejudices thrive on ignorance mm -hmm. and unfamiliarity. And what I believe, just on a little bit of anecdotal evidence and personal experience, is that when you get in a room with people that you think you've got a big gripe with because of a lot of preconceived ideas, once you're talking to them, you realize you've got a lot more in common than any sort of battle lines you felt like drawing. Mm -hmm. So I think one remedy to this kind of angry, defensive brooding toxicity is just sort of like you know, getting it mixed up with each other and talking and sort of like you know the impersonality of mm -hmm. social media communications it's people like in their own car it's like road rage i guess i'm a big believer in just immediate exposure to other people in conversation it'll sort of dissipate a lot of that sort of just people's ideas racing and stereotypes getting a momentum of their own yeah, less less internet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something about it. Stop listening to this podcast and go outside <laughs> and see a human. But, go see a human. But that's also a reminder to myself because I am sitting in an attic right now alone making a podcast. <laughs> Let's all go to the local um, pub or gardening gardening club, probably. Okay, well, thanks so much, Kristen. Uh, you've been listening to uh, terrifying questions uh, and how not to be terrified by them a philosophy podcast with Terla Carmen and Eric Kaplan and our guest has been uh, Kristen Conger uh, who is the host of the unladylike podcast and you should definitely check that out because it's great and uh, thanks so much thanks for your time oh thanks so much for having me thanks Kristen okay This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen.